I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and alongside me in the studio is former Scotland scrum half Rory Lawson. This week we're joined by Worcester captain Dr O'Callaghan, European Rugby Club chairman Simon Halliday and former Ireland international Reggie Corrigan. We'll be talking rugby league with Phil Kaplan and Quinn's coach Gary Street takes us through the first weekend of the Women's Premier 15s. On with the show. Rory, um... A game abroad, Philadelphia, Sarri's Falcons. Where was the crowd? Yeah, good question. Not uh, not in the ground watching Newcastle Saracens, um, judging by, by the pictures on the television. Obviously, the Premiership Rugby will be disappointed by by the crowd appearance there. They would have hoped for a sellout. It was it was certainly touted as being a, a sellout, but there is so much sport. And I guess it, it does show that rugby is a developing game in the US but it's a hugely competitive market and with the NFL having kicked off the weekend before the one just gone it's it's one whereby you're fighting for spectators eyes well it's difficult when you've got 80 to 100,000 uh, uh people going to see college football um, it wasn't a great game either that didn't uh, particularly help I think as a as an experiment it was worth doing I think they might have to think a little bit harder in terms of the teams and whether there's an affinity with any particular um, city they hold it in, like Boston for London Irish, maybe. I know it's a bit cliched, but uh, uh, I think in, in the long run it was it was it was probably worthwhile. But I, I'm sure they were disappointed, as you say, in the uh, in the outcome. Um, what wasn't disappointing again were uh, some of the uh, Aviva Premiership results. There was a a good win, a really good win, actually, um, away. F- from Harlequins over Wasps. Now, uh, irrespective of whatever happened in the game, uh, the Haskell and Marler incident, which resulted in a yellow card for James Haskell for throttling Marler off the ball, what was your view of that? Yeah, it was an interesting one, wasn't it? England and Lions teammates coming coming head to head. Um, I, I think you know Joe Marler got exactly what he wanted from it. Uh, he obviously prodded and, and, and poked away at Haskell and eventually um, Haskell reacted and ended up with a yellow card. If, if, I, if I'm looking at it as a, as a spectator and a, and a pundit, I turn around and say, you know, James Haskell had a point. At the mm. end of the day, Marler had the top of his hat, was pulling up on on his on his scrum cap which was essentially throttling him um, and, he, and he sprayed water in his face so Haskell reacted grabbed him round the throat you could argue that you know it's potentially Haskell's not a million miles away from a red card but for me I think it should have been a, it should have been the, the same outcome for both players and that's fair enough I'm a bit reluctant to uh, criticise Marlon not because of, uh, I'm an ex-Quim but because I wasn't necessarily the uh, 
the uh, kindest person on the field um, and I might have uh, provoked one or two people so I don't want to be too much of a hypocrite but in the end actually what you have to say to yourself I think is what good does allowing this um, provoke Provocation, you know, bring for the game, and it isn't anything, is it? Because you know, you get people patting, you know, people on the head when they're given penalties away and stuff like that. Uh, in American football, there's a specific taunting penalty now, it's 15 yards, unsportsmanlike conduct. Maybe they could bring in, I don't know, uh, well, it was probably a yellow card. I, yeah, I, I think in the end, you're probably right. It should have been the both, uh, the same for both. Having said that, you know, Haskell is a is a very seasoned international, and when you realise you know, the outcome and what is being aimed at, then if you grant it by doing what he did, then, you know, you've a case to say, actually, yeah, James, you know, you, you've moved on from your younger days now. Just just laugh it off. I think in, in hindsight, you know, Haskell's one of the leaders in that Wasps team and I'm sure he'll he'll turn around and look at it and see the result. And ultimately, the his yellow card and Cipriani's yellow card mm. paid a price. And, and Quinn's... Uh, broke the the record the Wasps had of yeah. of twenty unbeaten games at, at the Rico Arena, and and for them that's a, that was a huge win. Um, it's a huge win in any situation, but particularly given their disappointment of week one, the Quins have reacted incredibly well off yeah. the back of it, and are are, are now looking like a, a solid side. Uh, well, you're um, one of a halfback combination, Marcus Smith. What do you think of, of him? I mean, look, it's a lot lot to ask when he's only, you know, 18, just done his A-levels. But do you, what, what sort of promise do you see there? But to be to be honest, before I, I actually saw him play, I'd heard a lot about him playing schoolboy rugby and ultimately almost operating on a different level to, to anyone else that was in his team. And you can see that. Now, it just highlights for me, some of these young kids that are coming through are pretty much ready for the Premiership by the time they are 18. The academy system now, the school system, the age group international system one is, is one whereby you can see the development of players and now whether physically or mentally they seem ready. Um, I say that in, in the same at the same time as having seen the photo of him alongside <laughs> Haskell throttling Marler looking like a scared schoolboy. Yeah. But uh, no, didn't didn't he show up well? He's in only his second game I think in a, in a Quinn's jersey walking away with a man of the match performance a couple of key kicks late on which for a season pro were theoretically gimmies but at the same time for a youngster like that big occasion big moment he stepped up and he's he's got a big future well interesting you mentioned um, sort of schools and uh, you know younger age grade rugby because one of the products that's been very beneficial and people don't really realize that unless they know what's going on is a lot of the in a lot of the club players are retiring are taking up masterships. I mean, this is public school, uh, but some secondary school, you know, some state secondaries as well. Uh, and they're taking jobs as, as PE teachers or coaches, principally because they can put their kids through school, which they wouldn't be able to afford to do, especially if they've more than one. And obviously that's bringing a far higher standard than just, a, you know, a teacher who's interested in rugby but has not played at a top level. So the coaching uh, down the age grade is getting better and better because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And you look across the board at... You know, I've, I've had mates that have gone down that exact route, um, you know, both in Scotland and in, in England. And my cousin, in fact, teaches up at Ely in Cambridgeshire, and he's he's been to interviews whereby you've had veterans of the Premiership and Scottish and English internationals essentially going for the same job because 
their profile for the school is an incredibly positive thing. Their experience of rugby and, and top level rugby is incredibly important. Um, and obviously for them on the flip side, it's it's great to have the potential opportunity of, of putting kids through that school system. But I think on the whole, the standards that they bring, it's, it, it is now a professional setup. And I went and visited Joe Ansborough actually up at Harrow School, a former Scotland international. He teaches up there and coaches the first 15. And I went and saw the facilities there and they are absolutely phenomenal. They're as good as most premiership rugby clubs for the kids. And, yep. you know, it made me wish that I was back <laughs> being 15 years old and having that ability to essentially get the great strength and conditioning coaching, getting coaching from, you know, ex-international professional rugby players well, I mean what a platform that course, is for and of course now. you've got the contact time you know in football they talk about the number of hours you need uh, pre under you know pre 16 to get um, kids really well developed in a, a range of skills and if you've got them especially if it's a boarding school and you can you know, have things outside the uh, normal curriculum. You, you've you've got a, a willing and you know desperate audience that soak things up, uh, with those facilities and the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, just talking about the the Harrow scenario. There was I remember I went and watched the Surrey Sevens, and one of the kids looked like a pretty talented player. And I, I spoke to one of the other coaches, Brendan McCurcher, who's a former opponent of mine at schoolboy level in Scotland. And he turned to me and said, "Yeah, he's a he's a pretty talented kid. He's he'll be a straight A's student. He's a scratch golfer. Um, he's a hundred meter sprinter, and he's in a rugby team. Oh, and, and he's and he's a and he's a cricketer as well. So for these kids now." In that environment, what an opportunity it is. And I think you have their time, you have the ability to really develop them as as men. And that's that's one thing that I saw as well is that the respect and the and the values that are taught uh, to these kids are, are there. But the opportunity for them to develop skills that transfer across the sports is is absolutely phenomenal. And we're seeing that more and more adding in the academy system that so many of these kids are in within the premiership teams. Um, let's move on. I, I don't think he went to public school, but uh, Richard Cockrell, um, he's the... I would like to have been in the... Well, I wouldn't like to have been in the dressing room, um, you know, after the Edinburgh loss. That, that, that shouldn't happen, should it, really? Not, not... I mean, look, there's always one game that a side... You know, the Treviso, they can pull out, but he must have been at a loss to know what to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, as a, as a former Edinburgh player um, and, and someone who looks incredibly closely at this, the Scottish teams and how they're performing, it, it was an encouraging opening two weeks for Edinburgh. A win, a win away at Cardiff and, you know, a home win against the Dragons, but that really did would have brought them back down to earth. They were 14 0 up, looking comfortable. Um, and seem to just take their foot off the pedal and Richard Cockrell justifiably will will be infuriated by that playing against 13 men I think towards the, the latter stages of the game and those are games that you, you pretty much say are gimmies it's, it's one of these, those accumulator breakers if you were going to be someone that, that wanted to have a flutter it would, it would have been a gimme um, and I'm sure the players would have been on the, the wrong end of a a fair scene to from the coach. Where do you stand on this? Because in football, you know, everyone seems to decry a manager or coach who calls out players publicly. Um, I didn't like it if it ever happened to me. Fortunately, it didn't happen very often. But um, I wouldn't necessarily balk at you know the fact 
that someone said something, um, you know, publicly. If they said it to my face as well, I, I you know, I, I don't think uh, I was as, as precious as that. Where do you stand on that issue? Like rugby's a team game. Yes, individuals make errors. Individuals have bad games, and but there are very few games in which an individual loses a team a game. Um, yeah, there are incidents whereby a red card or yellow cards or you know a missed tackle or whatever would would starve a team of a win. But at the same time, pointing a finger at one individual mm. tricky scenario. Uh, you know, you see the reaction of of some coaches. I mean, you see the reaction of the South African. Uh, ex-players suggesting that many of the the performers from their loss at the weekend can they really say that they added value to that Springbok jersey no but even then it's very difficult for me to to point the finger at an individual I think collectively or with a group of people you could for argument's sake you could pick out a front five mm-hmm. if they're dominated at scrum and line out time you could you could pick out uh, half backs if they they have poor decision making across the game but mm-hmm. with regards to an individual I, for me it's, it's, it's a tricky one OK well you brought up the uh Rugby uh, Championship and it's difficult this isn't because the All Blacks play great rugby Uh, but a competition cannot have for long a team that is never invariably going to win it and maintain interest and I just wonder I'm not sure what you can do about it but you know the the All Blacks being so ubiquitous and and crushing everyone around them is not going to help that competition certainly medium term is it? No it doesn't help and I think it it highlighted for me I, I felt that the the Bledisloe game that the All Blacks ended up scoring in the, in the dying moments suggested that there were real chinks in their armoury that could be exposed by by a team who got them on an off day and took some opportunities because the Wallabies could have could have come away with a win of that game. Yeah. As it is, you then look at South Africa who are seemingly re- resurgent after you know yes a draw in Australia, a couple of wins against Argentina, but it just went to show at the weekend that if you're if you're not there, if you're not at the level that you need to be operating to play against the All Blacks, and if you don't understand how to put them under pressure, then you're in trouble. For the first quarter, South Africa competitive, but then from there, the floodgates opened up. New Zealand were at the ruthless best but at the, for, for the, that 60-minute block, but for me, South Africa were just toothless. They fell off too many, and it was, it was too easy for, for New Zealand. I do believe that there are there are opportunities to break them down. As much as it highlights that the Lions draw was an incredibly good result, I think also it does highlight that if you're not at your best, particularly in New Zealand, you're going to be right up against it. Well, just before we go to uh, our uh, guests, I have to um, say con- I have to uh, congratulate you because you were the the first certainly that I uh, was aware of and one of the very few people who spotted that that ball didn't go forward and we, I, in fact I had to go back and look at it actually and when I did look at it you were right I was right Brian <laughs> I was right I, d- I didn't come with misinformation and I sat for a long time in front of that TV deciding whether that knock-on in the final test of the Lions wasn't a knock-on it wasn't and I got an absolute hammering on Twitter and the likes when I when I suggested that it was good refereeing and that he did the right thing because ultimately if we had looked back and realised it wasn't a knock-on yet the All Blacks had won it would have been robbery 
Mm. Well, you see, that's that, this sort of guest we have on here. We have shrewd people who uh, who spot things way before uh, other people. Okay, I'm pleased to say we can now speak to the European Rugby Chairman, Simon Halliday. Hello, Simon. Hello, Brian. How are you? Okay, a couple of things, a couple of games, obviously, that you're uh, linked with. The Northampton uh, win over Bath. I wondered whether Bath were the real deal. I think it's too um, early to, to say yes or no. And I was a bit disappointed. Not 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 just the the manner of the well, it was in the manner of the loss actually. Yeah, it's. it's um, I've only seen them sort of live once this year, and, and that was with um, our old mate Jerry Gusgott down at Bath, and and you, you sensed. Uh, particularly given their away win at Leicester, which uh, any Bath player would tell you is a feather in the cap, it's never easy, uh, that there was something different and a real sense of these guys working for each other very, very hard. And obviously they've got a lot of talent. I think, you know, they've got a lot of injuries already this season, which is not a mitigating factor. But uh, yeah, Northampton was a setback, but they were also up against a side that was, I think, still smarting from being dismantled by Saracen. So it's probably a bit of both. And uh, Quinn's, well, not a, not a historic win, but uh, you know it ended uh, Wasps' home record of twenty uh, unbeaten. Uh, I didn't expect that. Uh, did you? Well, I mean, Quinn's Quinn's on the road, uh, Brian. I'm trying to remember how many games we used to win away from home. A, a few more than this lot had done up until now, because last year they were very flaky, as we know. Um, but they they seem to have had quite a bit of. Uh, you know, they've got some grit there and um, they played a pretty feisty game, which you don't associate with the Quins. And, uh, I mean, they probably should still on balance of loss because Wasps blew a number of opportunities. But, um, you know, winning away from home gives you huge confidence and, and this Quins team might be able to build, um, build quite a lot from that, to be honest. Uh, Rory and I were discussing before you came on the uh, Haskell and Marla incident. What was your view of that? Um, there's a technical view, which is you're not allowed to grab someone's headgear and start to rip it off his face. And the, the slightly gratuitous water spray, which someone like Haskell should probably ignore. But I mean, my view is they should both have gone. I mean, um, whatever. They were they were having a crack at each other. They know each other pretty well. If you're going to send one, send both. But other than that, um, in our day, you'd have probably ignored it, tell them to get on with the game. But... Uh, the stuff you're not allowed to do these days. Um, turning to your European um, uh, responsibilities, uh, how, you know, how, what's the sponsorship uh, position like with uh, the champions and the yeah, the cup? Yeah, well, it's it's safe to say that the last few months, uh, a bit more than that actually, have been caught up in TV rights renewals. Mm-hmm. And that's by no means just saying that, you know, that's been a massive deal for us. I mean, I think, uh, quote me on the percentage, but a very high percentage of what we, of the revenue that we get, um, other than the semifinals and the finals, comes from the TV rights. And a a small percentage comes from sponsorship, Mm -hmm. which is not to to diminish what we want to do in sponsorship. But I think, you know, after year two, um, you know, we've got a lot of advanced conversations going on, but it's still disappointing that we are where we are. And uh, I can only say that, I guess, when you look back and, and imagine how the business, you know, two big competitions had to start from scratch, there's been a lot of head down 
get the tournaments run well, which I think everyone would agree they have been. But people are still struggling to... You know, there's a lot of rugby properties around. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a pan-European, you know, two competitions, in fact, three, it's not a straightforward discussion to have. Uh, I think a lot of companies worldwide now are pulling back and looking at their own regional areas, you know, so they become more national about what they do rather than, um, you know, pan-Europe. So it's not an excuse, it's just a reality. And I think, um, you know, we are very, very focused on it. What do you see um, in the the sort of medium-term future in terms of progression through the tournaments? Can you see the qualifying ones as of right bringing some of the um, club sides from the Tier 2 nations in? our mandate to uh, you know grow rugby across all the territories but the third tournament I mean we obviously got two Russian teams in the Challenge Cup which is a bit unusual you know as people keep saying is Russia really in Europe and, and Siberia but we've got outside of that you know Georgian franchise Germany Spain who qualified for the, for the Olympics in the sevens as you know uh, Germany beat Romania last season uh, who were also involved as our two or three teams from Italy uh, and Portugal knocks on the door so and we had Holland last year so yeah I mean it's um, it's growing strongly I just think it's a question of, of integrating that approach with the powers that be in rugby Europe for example who manage the second tier six nations tournament so we're out there doing it I think the question is how does it grow from here? Because we're already running two major tournaments and, and, and running a third one um, is, is, you know, it asks us questions about how we manage our resource. But it's great to see because um, there's a huge amount of enthusiasm. And as you know, we've got our finals in Bilbao this year. So, um, you know, taking the final to, a, to an emerging country. Well, um, let's hope that uh, you can fulfil some role of uh, developing the uh, uh, the international and tier two club nations. Thank you very much, Sam. Cheers. Thanks, Brian. We can now speak to the uh, Worcester captain, uh, Don Callaghan. I think uh, he's there. Hello. Hi, Brian. How are Hello, you? mate. How are you? Um, let's not be a bad bush. It's not been an easy start for for Worcester. How concerned are you? No, um, I suppose you're not concerned. I'll be honest. If anything, you're frustrated. You know the way better than anyone when you're getting results and winning. Uh, rugby's enjoyable and training's enjoyable, but when you're not getting results and not performing to the best of your ability, it can be uh, really frustration, uh, frustrating. So that's the biggest emotion at the moment, you know, just around training, guys are a little bit snappy and, uh, you know, we know better than anyone. That's how, uh, you know, the, the life of a rugby player is when you get results every joke is funny it's great fun going into training you love it but um, you know when uh, when you're not getting results it's tough but um, you know an awful lot of ours um, are still conflicted at the moment are, are error rated really high and you know the premiership is a tough league and if you're going to you know um, make, you know little mistakes um, you can't build any pressure and you know, we, but you're right, we do need to do, not only get a result, we need to get a performance. Is it as simple as saying, you know, a win will change um, the landscape, more positivity and so on, or um, is it deeper than that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's, where the league is at the moment, three games in, you know, you pick up any points at the moment and you're, you know, you're nearly mid-table, you know, so it's, uh, it, it, it's just, the search for that first result, really, you know, and 
uh, you know it. When you train really hard in the preseason, you've done all the hard work, but you don't get judged on these fitness games or any of the weightlifting or whatever goes on. It's, you know, you get judged as a rugby player, and the only thing that matters is results and uh, and getting that win. Hi, Donica. Rory Lawson here. Um, Hi, Rory. Great to chat. Um, you know, you talk, you talk about the errors and unforced errors coming on a Saturday. And, you know, obviously I, I know having been in a scenario whereby pressure's on with the results going against you. How have you, how will you go about this week in preparing, obviously, for the game uh, coming up this weekend? Obviously, uh, the, the West Country Derby against Gloucester just down the road. You know, that's, that's yeah. a huge game in itself. How do you go about preparing for that, cutting out those errors and essentially bringing out a big performance against a team who themselves, um, as my old team, I keep a close eye and, and you know, albeit yeah, just three games in, they're already under a little bit of pressure. Yeah, yeah. look, you're 100% right. You look at all the areas of it. So you look at forward, how you can improve as a team. Rory, our, our disappointing things have been individual errors at the moment and they're that really, you know, better. They really frustrate coaches because um, there's nothing within the system of defence, or there's nothing with the the attack system. It's just a case of just doing your job right, or catching a pass, or looking after the ball in contact. And they're the ones we're leaking at the moment, and they they seem to swing momentum. If you know what I'm saying, that the other team kind of, um, you know, get a boat of confidence by one of your errors so um, I think for me the big thing we need to eradicate in our game is individual errors and I think that's in guys own mental preparation for the game you know and and rocking up and myself included and making sure that your own personal error rate is really low I think to be fair we're good within our systems and you know obviously the way modern rugby has gone you need exits and stuff like that that can always be improved and be better but um, I think we leave ourselves down with basic individual errors that um, that really cost us because, like I said, the Brian, you can't build momentum off the back of them. Absolutely. And obviously um, it's, it's early in the week yet and there's a, a few days to go, but I, I sense there'll be a, an extra little edge to Carl Hogg's voice this week as, a, as an ex-Gloucester coach. Um, now up at Worcester, it's, um, it's one I know living down in that neck of the woods still, it'll be an important game for him. Yeah, exactly. We have a few boys that were with Gloucester as well. So you know, the the guys that actually bring the emotional drive to the week, and and then instead of kind of um, avoiding that, it's something you, you hopefully you can tap into. You know as well as anyone that it's it's a, you know if you play kind of on that emotional edge of stuff as well, that players can go a little bit beyond themselves. So we need to tie into everything because uh, we need to play a bit beyond ourselves at the moment. Uh, to get a result down there it's a tough place to go I know you're saying they're probably struggling for form but when you watch that extra game when they hit their straps for a quality team and um, you know it's really early to make calls on them you know there's always pressure on Gloucester because of the expectation of their you know the crowd their supporters everyone that matters to them but you know they're a big big team they've history tradition so um, you know we have to like that, we have to tap into that kind of emotional side of it. And yeah, Augie is spitting fire as well, but to be fair, he won't kick or pass a ball, but um, the rest of the players have to probably be up to that speed and 
and you know he he's battled then is making sure everyone's prepped and ready to go. But um, you know, you can chat about kind of rivalries and stuff. The only matter is they're competitive, and last year we were competitive with Gloucester, you know. So you'd wonder how much they'd really worry about us. So we need to, um, you know, if you want to have a rivalry, you have to, uh, you know, it's like fighting your older brother. Sometimes you to get one up, and so we need to uh, stand up at some point. Well, Dominica, thanks very much. Um, best uh, of luck for that, and uh, thank you for joining us. Cheers, Donica. Cheers, no problem at all. Best of luck, lads. Time now to speak about the uh, women's game, and I'm pleased to say we can speak to Gary Street, the Quinns coach and World Cup winning coach with England in 2013. He's fresh from uh, a win away at Wasps like the male counterparts. Gary, hello. Uh, evening, Brian. How are you? I'm all right. Um, the, the format itself... What was the thinking behind uh, mirroring, you know, the the the, the established club system? Do you think? Um, I, I think that, and, and definitely, what we've seen at, at Queens, I mean, we're really fortunate to have amazing support. Is that it's that next level, really? And, and although at the moment the the game isn't professional on field, off field is where the big gains are being made. You know, I can speak for ourselves, where we've got you know, we've got five coaches for, at Queens, two training and conditioners, performance analysts, all that sort of stuff, and that's what other clubs are bringing in and I think if you've got the infrastructure mm-hmm. um, then it's, it's a lot easier to do and, and um, it's it's been a really interesting summer seeing the, the change for players off the field really. Hi Gary, Rory Lawson here. Hi Rory. Um, historically I suppose the, the London clubs have been the sort of powerhouses. Um, is there potential for clubs, clubs outside them 25 to, to challenge this year? I mean I see the Gloucester Harbury women's side had a, had a great win. Um, who, who are the real contenders? I think it's going to be re- and, and we're not sitting on the fence but the, uh, it's, it's so new and the, the play movement can both coming back from the World Cup we, um, people are still um, it's two weeks away from the, the, the World Cup players to even come in so a few of those have moved. I think geographically um, what the RFU has done, and, and obviously there's been there's been lots of debate, but there are sides right in the northwest, in the northeast, now Midlands, southwest. So geographically, it, it's it could be pretty open. Um, it has generally been been London, but I think there's going to be definitely a, a change around now. And, and obviously, uh, Sarah Hunter, the England captain, has now gone to to Loughborough Lightning, for example. Katie McLeod, my World Cup captain in Newcastle, um, Waterloo building in in the north. West as well, so it's it's going to be interesting. I think it might take a couple of months to settle about where people are. It's been much uh, talked about, and I've made my view quite clear. I think it's a mistake actually uh, not to concentrate on both fifteens and sevens equally. The RFU um, and to be fair to them, they are putting a lot of money in uh, to the women's game, much more so than any other union. But yeah. what do you think about the repetition of that focus? Because I think it. I don't think it worked last time. Yeah, and I, and I think, and I, I think with the um, the investment into the the Premier Fifteens, although I think there's obviously there's the debate about the contracts, the the money into the clubs and the investment from the clubs, I think will I think will be the diff. Well, and, and I think we're almost like stakeholders to make the difference. I feel that you know the club, the onus is on our clubs there to make sure that Fifteens doesn't go behind. You know, obviously I'm, I'm the biggest champion here of Fifteens Rugby Post Star World Cup and. And we need to make sure that it, it isn't just a cycle because it's an RFU contract thing. We need to make this premiership the best it can be. We need to make sure that the England 15 players and the other internationals that we've got 15 aside at Quinns are the most looked after. So 
it's not a sort of feast and famine that we, we you know we we need we need to build that that gap between and and, and you know I, I know that for one that you know we're going to try our best to make sure that we make sure the 15s is at the forefront and not just reliance on our few contracts and, and cycles there and Gary um, just off the back of the of a really successful World Cup in Dublin um, just looking at the at the grassroots is I know it's obviously early days but has uh, it was obviously fantastic exposure for the women's game Game, free to air TV, you know the the final England against the the New Zealand women, you know on primetime TV on a Saturday night, uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, have, have you seen a shift, or do you anticipate a, a big shift in in grassroots and more girls lo- looking to get into the game after that sort of exposure? Well, this is what we've got to be ready for, and I think this is where the clubs need to use investment wide, wisely as well. Is that last time I know from personal experience is that the Girls were started to come into the game, but there wasn't enough coaching resource and, and backing behind it. So I think girls came in and drifted away again. And I think that definitely some of that legacy was lost. Um, we, we need to make sure that we're really at the forefront of it and that we've got our coaching's better, our, our facilities are better. And that, that's going to be key for retention. Um, we're, we're probably still going through some of the challenges that there was in the male game a while ago and and, and you know that RFU investment we've got to make sure that the kids and you know girls and boys as well that they come into the game rugby have a great experience great coaching experience and, and keep coming back that that's key for all of us Gary the, the biggest challenge and I say this as father of uh, well, two eldest uh, girls one, one still plays mini rugby and the, and the other stopped because when she got to 11 she couldn't play mixed anymore not allowed to but the problem for the eldest one was that the nearest uh, organised team had an under 14s um, but that was one of few clubs anywhere near um, their geographical location and getting uh, the pathway from 11, 12, 13 and having each year um, with teams available to play that are not too far away. That is the key, isn't it, to actually cracking the women's game wide open and how can that be done? You're absolutely spot on, right? We keep having these cycles where everyone's excited six months after World Cup and then it disappears again for another four years. So I think that's key. Major stakeholders at our rugby clubs working with the RFU, making sure there's opportunities for girls to play because I, I go around the country seeing, seeing it all the time and at 13 or 14, to be honest, most of the girls I see they're better than the lads. They, they're more they're more intelligent, they look at the space and, and, they're really, and they're really good rugby players and we need to keep them in the game. So, you know, we, we don't want to miss the Emily Scarrow that's got nowhere to play at 13 years old. Gary, best of luck uh, with <clears> this initiative. Very, very important. Please come back later on in the season. Tell us how it's going. Well done. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Time now to turn our attention to the Pro 14, and I'm really pleased to say uh, that we can now speak to the former Leinster and Ireland prop, Reggie Corrigan. Hello, Reggie. Hello, Brian. How are you? You well? I'm all right. Uh, Let's pick out, uh, it happens to be an Irish uh, win, but I think it was uh, a very significant one, the Ulster 27-20 win over the Scarlets. Uh, Unexpected or deserved? Um... No, not unexpected. Um, I'd have to say before the game, I feel they were going to win. They're a very, very difficult team to beat in Kingspan Stadium. Um, and I think uh, all the teams that go there have found that out over the years. I mean, it's true to say, obviously, the start of the current champions. And, you know, you'd expect maybe they could have gotten a victory there. But there's been some changes in Ulster, new coaching staff coming in. And I know John O'Gives uh, well, personally. I worked with him in the past. And I knew he would give Ulster uh, somewhat of the boot up the ass that they need, to be honest with you. Um, they've been a long time promising things, but 
failing to deliver. And if anyone can kind of, you know, get them going, it would be him. So I'm not all that surprised at all that it was a win. I, I have to say I thought it would happen that way. Reggie, with regards to the Irish clubs, you've got Munster three from three at the top of Conference A, Leinster and Ulster both three from three in Conference B. What's the general reaction been to the opening three rounds of the, the new format of the Pro 14 so far? Yeah, obviously from an Irish point of view, they're great results um, and they're sitting pretty. But that being said, I think it's fair to say as well, there's you know, there's a, there's a mood over here that you need to give these South African teams a chance to bet in a little bit into the competition and find their feet. But at the same time, they need to start to produce something pretty soon because the last thing that this league can afford is to have two more whipping boys uh, who are just going to be there to make up numbers and who are uh, easy prey for the other teams. We already have a bit of that going on with the Italian sides already, albeit um, a bit of a shock result for Edinburgh at the weekend. But you know, you can't afford to have any more weaknesses coming into this league. They're trying to strengthen it. They're trying to make it into something that's attractive for people to go to and, and a type of rugby that people want to watch. And you only have to look at the attendance at the Leinster game where there was less than 500 people at a completely empty stadium for the Leinster game. Uh, there's no local interest in the scenes in South Africa either. So it's a very tricky situation for the league itself um, to try and market itself well by bringing quality games to it. Obviously, um, from a nice point of view, it's great getting three wins from three, but those wins have got to get, they've got to be against quality opposition as there's not much point to it, you know? Yeah, Reggie, I think obviously looking at it, the, the they have kind of been sprung into this league, haven't they? Both the Kings and the Cheetahs and coming off the back of a super rugby season, it's almost one whereby do, they've, they've got to be given time. They've, they've played a season. They're now kicking on and the challenges are, yes, they're, they're in a completely new environment. They're playing against teams with different style. They're, they're heading up to play teams that they've never played before. Is, it, is a season enough to actually give them an opportunity to show what they're about for the South African structures to be able to put sides into it that are competitive or... Or, you know, is it as cutthroat as to say, look, this isn't working? Um, I saw John Schmidt's suggestion as well that you do a, a rotation of two teams out of Super Rugby into this and that would develop. I mean, that's even that's even more extreme um, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, if, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm playing the sympathetic card um, and you look at the, the Kings and the Cheetahs after Super Rugby season, should they be given the opportunity now to to understand the league that they're in, pick up a few wins like the Cheetahs did against the, against Zebra and then show properly what they're about when they get an off-season and a proper pre-season to come into the league again in the 2018-19 season. Well, Roy, the reality of the situation for me is very simple. South African rugby have got to take this seriously. They've mm. got to fund them and allow them to have the players that are necessary to compete and they've got to back them. Um, the only reason these two teams are in this league and the only reason that it's happened is... Uh, out of panic they both know both these teams know that if they didn't get into something quickly and South African rugby know that if they didn't get them into something quickly those two franchises would have been disbanded and there would have been no more rugby in those areas because that's how serious it was and that's why there was 6 million euro uh, thrown at the uh, Pro 12 to allow these teams to come in it was all done last minute it was all uh, put together very very quickly and it was all done to try and um, save the franchise, which is fully understandable. I and mean, we get it. There's even talk, I've heard it at the last Leinster game, talking to some of the, the um, officials, let's say, in, in Leinster, that two more South African teams wanting to come in. 
So there's no problem with that, and, and I'd fully endorse it. In fact, I think it would be wonderful to see them and even an American team or two coming in and making it a more uh, substantial league, even if 20 teams wouldn't bother me, as long as those teams are quality. So the book stops with South African rugby here. Um, we saw what happened to them against the All Blacks. They're in crisis mode at the moment. Uh, they're bringing back Razi Erasmus. There's an obvious reason for that. They're looking to fix what's wrong with South African rugby, and there are many things wrong with it. So they're bringing back Rasmus. They've got to fix their Springbok team. Their Springbok team won't do anything without good club sides. So until South Africa pump the money into the club sides, give them the decent players and players who can compete with the rest of the Northern Hemisphere sides around here, um, they're not going to have a chance. So I think rather than say, look, at the end of this season, Cheetahs and Kings are out, you're no good. I think what they'll say is, no, you're both in, but South African Union, you've got to support them and you've got to give them really top quality players and a budget to get those players and put structures in place. And then they can be given a couple of seasons because they can make the argument of, okay, you know, you've got to give us a chance to bed all this in. And when we do that, then we'll be the ones that you'll be trying to beat, not the other way around. So that's the way it's going to have to work. And if it doesn't, it'll fall apart pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. Um, just um, just picking up on what you, you said previously, obviously with regards to the, the Pro 14 overall, um, and just off the back of uh, Billy Vinopola's comments at the weekend about you know player burnout and strikes and so on, uh, I remember Jim Hamilton, an old Gloucester and Edinburgh teammate of mine, I think he, he referenced that, I think he played Leinster six times and, didn't in in the in the the league and didn't play didn't face Brian O'Driscoll once. Um, how important do you think it is when you look at the other competitions, but also taking into account the fact that these the the, the main players in all the squads are playing internationals, Europe and domestic league. Just how important is it that the fans of these clubs and uh, you know provinces in Ireland are seeing the their best players as regularly as possible to bring true value to the to the domestic competitions yeah well it is crucial I mean they've you know they've brought in two more teams but effectively they've reduced the games believe it or not in the way that they've set it up but uh, to be honest with you there are no players um, looked after and minded more carefully than the Irish players are so I'm not surprised that uh, O'Driscoll didn't play against Jim as often as you mentioned because oh, Jim was there's delighted. a cap put on yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a cap put on the number of times Irish internationals get to play games in total. Um, and, you know, I'm sure the English players in particular are looking at this going, oh my God, I'd love to be in a setup like that where I'm being so well protected. I, I can remember a time when, going back to the days of uh, Martin Johnson, uh, you know, where he would have played almost 40 games a season, you know, Um all in all, between internationals and everything else that he's involved in. And it, it would have been lucky for an Irish international to get 25. So the difference, that 15-game difference is, is phenomenal. And uh, I can see where Vinopola is coming from because, you know, the, the season just seems to be getting longer. And you look at France, it's even worse. You know, it just yes. it's going into June, the season. So there, there definitely needs to be a management structure in place to, to look after the player welfare. But at the same time, I get the point about getting those top-quality names playing every week is crucial. I mean, there's nobody going to go to the Premier League and watch Man United playing with their reserve side, you know, every second week in a, in a substandard league. You know, that just isn't going to happen. People are not going to bother with that. 
they're just waiting to go to the, the, the top Premier League games. And the same thing is going to happen in rugby if we're not careful. I mean, obviously, um, in England, the, their league, the, the league there is, is the crucial league and the top league, Premier League top league. Same in France, top 14. That's all they care about. Um, and then, you know, for the likes of Leinster, the big one is, you know, the championship. That's it. The European Cup is, is what it's all about. But you must have a domestic league that supports that because you can't have a situation where you're playing and beating teams by 50 points one week and expected to go out against the best in Europe the following week uh, with budgets of 25 million at their disposal and be able to up the intensity and play at that level and at that quality. It just doesn't happen. So it's it's an unbelievably fine balance to try and find uh, the number of games that's the magic number that players can play without fatiguing them and causing injuries but at the same time giving the fans the product they want to go and see Reggie tremendous value as always thank you very much you're welcome Brian Okay, it's very nearly the end of the Rugby League Super League season. I'm pleased to say that uh, to guide us through the uh, last couple of rounds, we've got the editor of the 4020 magazine, Phil Kaplan. Hello, Phil. Hello, thanks for asking me. That's all right. Uh, It's getting tight, isn't it? uh, Look, Hull from a tremendous Challenge Cup win. The now, uh, it's a bit precarious from them. Do you think they're going to do it? Well, it's four teams, three games, two semi-final spots up for grabs. So yep. the, the final round is going to be the uncertainty of outcome that we've seen all year, apart from Castleford romping away. The scenario is if St Helens win on Thursday uh, at home to Salford, which they should, the way Salford are playing at the moment, then that knocks Wakefield out of the race. Yep. Hull would need to get a point at Castleford on Friday. That would mean that they would finish third. Um, and that would effectively knock Wigan out the race because they would need to win by such a huge points difference. Is it points difference Wigan. that decides if the if the um, if the, the sorry points for and against difference if the points total is the same? Yes, that's right. So obviously, how you've played over the thirty rounds is a determinant in in where you finish if the teams are level. Um, so it, it's really exciting. I I have a feeling that um, St Helens are, are a bit of the wild card. Um, they bought Ben Barber in for the playoffs. Didn't have the greatest of starts, but then he hadn't played for nearly 11 months since winning a grand final with Cronulla over the other side of the world. He's now finding his feet was sensational this week when they beat Huddersfield. Um, They've always made the playoffs. They're the only team since Super League began that will have been in the playoffs every single year if they get there. I think that stands you in good stead around this time of the year. You mentioned Hull as well. I think what they've done in the Challenge Cup over the past two years just shows that they are the kind of team that have worked out now how to play the really big games when it matters. That would leave Wigan not making it. And I think Sean Wayne would admit the way they played against um, a slightly below strength Castleford this week, maybe they don't deserve to get there because over the course of 30 games, they just haven't played well enough. Yeah, it's interesting with Wigan. I mean, they're such a, a powerful franchise, such a historic club with their, their record. And they have had injuries, but not to the extent to extenuate some of the performances to me. I think that's right. They, they did superbly to get to the Challenge Cup final. Hull were just better than them on the day, but even that went down to a forward pass in the last couple of minutes to determine who will be the outcomes. The one thing about Wigan is they don't go away. In every game, they've been 
competitive and that is the Wigan spirit but you're right they've bought a lot of youngsters in this year uh, Liam Marshall on the wing uh, has just won one of the awards for young player of the year so they've had their successes but I just don't think they've got the same depth there at the moment and, and interestingly their, their crowds have plateaued a bit as well so uh, the, their attendance this year will be exactly the same as it was last year and it's almost like they need a little spark of something mm-hmm. just to get them back into the top four I mean, if you look at the uh, where the table is going to finish, irrespective of the results, you've got Castleford, uh, you know, a, a big margin uh, yeah. by any by any stretch of the imagination over a whole season out there, uh, which shows the quality of their squad. Can you genuinely see anyone having a realistic chance of beating them? I hope not, because I think what the competition needs is a new name to win it. And I think that the way they've played this year, they'll be won't far short of a thousand points in the regular season. I think that again deserves reward at the highest level. They've won the League Leader Shield, which is let's not forget that's massive for them. In the history of the club, in the ninety one years that they've been in existence, they'd never finished top of the table. Mm-hmm. They've done that, they've got silverware that represents that. More than that as well, they will be part of the World Club series next year. So good luck the Australian team that's going down the Mender Host jungle next February in the freezing cold <laughs> and um, you've, got, you've got to say I mean this has been it's not been a long it's been a long time coming in terms of their you know total history but it's been a fairly steady um, and inexorable climb since uh, you know the coaching setup there was changed and you can see how that's developed the, the way they've uh, brought players forward the way that they've uh, manoeuvred their squad and, and you can't but say it's well deserved it started in 2014 when they got to Wembley, but even then they were a selling club. Now they're not. They're, they've, they're bringing through some youngsters, and we have to pay tribute to, to Jake Truman. Everybody thought that the one thing that might derail the Tigers in the run to, the, to winning the grand final was we heard on Monday that Luke Gale, who is their talisman, their pivot, could even be the man of steel in a couple of weeks' time. He had to have an emergency appendicitis. The likelihood is that he won't play in the semi-final. He's trying to be fit should they get to the grand final. They drafted in an 18-year-old, Jake Truman, on his debut against Wigan yesterday. He scored a hat-trick. Very few players score a hat-trick on their debut, but a half-back doing it in such a, a pivotal position. I think that tells you about where Castleford are at the moment. And... Daryl Powell's greatest asset is his ability to bring on players. So yeah. they've signed the likes of Mike McMeekin from the London Broncos. He's now going to, it all being well, be on the plane to the World Cup at the end of this year. That's a phenomenal transformation. He, he, he's done the same with Gadwin Springer, who came from Catalan Dragons, and the young French raw talent. And, and now he's, he's in the 17. And I, I think that's the asset that Daryl Powell brings the they bought Zach Hardacre. I think that tells you where they are as a club. They wouldn't have been doing that three years ago. So you're absolutely right. It is an inexorable rise. They do play a lovely brand of football. But I also think the, the other thing that's sort of happening, and, and it might be that it's taken longer than we thought, is we're seeing that the salary cap is now having an effect. And the traditional hegemony of maybe four clubs, five if you include Warrington, um, it's now becoming, well, Castleford need to be included in that. Hull need to be included in that. Mention for Wakefield, who are probably just going to miss out on the four this year and, and don't spend yet the full salary cap. It's almost as if we're starting to see an uncertainty of outcome that, that 
possibly is going to be the bedrock of the competition from here on in. Listening to all the interesting debate about the Irish system, and I know that um, you've talked a lot in the past about where rugby union goes with its structure. The issue for rugby league, the same as that uh, as rugby union, is what do we do with the chasm between full-time and part-time? So at the top-end level, we're getting it right. And you can look at clubs like Toronto, who've got big investors who could be coming into that top level. But the traditional core of the sport, its geography and its demographic, that's going to stay part time how do we reconcile the two so very quickly uh, looking you mentioned catalan dragons well the, you know the uh, the league qualifiers super eights um that's in the same tight situation who do you see um uh, being pleased when the season ends there well we know that Lee are in the million pound game they don't know yet whether they're going to be playing at home or away that will depend on the last round of results but the massive match on Saturday evening is Catalan Dragons at home to Widners if Catalan win that then they're safe uh, obviously the same applies for, for Widners if Catalan were to lose and have to go to Lee in the million pound game the way they're playing at the moment with a complete lack of confidence yeah. You could see in the championship next year the, the bizarre sight of Catalan, Toulouse, Toronto and London, all the expansion teams being in the level below Super League. And that would be fascinating. And I honestly don't know how the game would reconcile that. Well, good air, Miles. <laughs> Fantastic. But not great for part-time players who play in that division, I don't think. I'm not sure they're going to get three weeks off work just to play rugby. No, absolutely. Phil, will you please come back and, uh, and see out the end of the season with us? Thank you very much, mate. No problem, any time. Cheers. Rory, just uh, finally, before we go, the Aviva Premiership is going to be very competitive, as it always is. Can you see any side breaking into, you know, the traditional winners of the last few years? And I can include Exeter in that, because you've got Bath, who've flattered in the first couple of games, then looked very brittle, as far as I'm concerned. Saints, who were terrible in the first game, but have shown you know, a lot of spirit uh, since then. Can, let's just say those, those three, Quinns, Northampton, Bath, and, and Newcastle, and those four, Newcastle, Quinns, Northampton, Bath. Can you see any of those contending for the top spot at the end of the season? Uh, look, I think it's really early to... To comment on exactly how this is going to pan out, and we'd, we'd look like fools if uh, if we look back. I think in in nineteen rounds time um, at, at the final makeup. I think what we have seen is that you know Exeter have reacted incredibly well after round one and want to defend their title. I thought you know they, their enthusiasm and attitude and mindset going away to Worcester was was incredibly good, and we know how difficult it is for them to to to, to beat them at, um, at Sandy Park. Wasps are going to continue to score points yes they would be disappointed to lose to, to Quinns on Sunday but they are a side who are going to score a boatload of tries and are going to grow and develop as the season runs on Saracens are always going to be there um, and just have such solid foundations you look at, at the start of the season for, for Leicester, you know, their, their win at home to Gloucester at the weekend was their first of the, week, um, of the season. They're sitting at ninth, and but will inevitably climb the table. Um, but with regards to that, that, that middle block, you know, fourth Newcastle, fifth Quinn, sixth Saints and seventh Bath, that's one for me whereby 
those those are the window those are the sides who have to capitalize on european windows whereby they're maybe not playing champions cup um and and uh, you know get fresh and some players up so that when it comes back to the premiership they can really kick on it's the international windows whereby they may not lose a huge number of players that they really need to generate some wins because we all know that these first handful of rounds the director of rugby's don't typically get too stressed about that. They look to build momentum in the second half of the year so that come the playoffs, they've got a squad who are who are buoyed by the squad being fit. They've got momentum. They're generating some good wins and they're in a position to really stake a claim. Whether they've got an away playoff or a, ho- or a home playoff, they just want to be in that mixer. So it is so competitive. The results this weekend show that. Rory, thank you very much. We've unfortunately come to the end of uh, this podcast and you've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. Rory, co-host, thank you very much. And to my producer, as always, Abby Patterson, thank you. Remember... Please subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free and then you'll never miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard, then please leave a review. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. Goodbye.